Amen. So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 28. You know, I hope that uh, this chapter, as well as the entire account of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, is becoming a good friend for you. We've spent quite a bit of time studying the events of his cru uh, crucifixion, becoming familiar with every detail. And I just hope it's something that is just really speaking to your heart. Last week, we started a two-part series looking at the seven sayings that Jesus made from the cross. Uh, we laid the foundations for the study by reviewing the physical and mental suffering that Jesus endured prior to his crucifixion. And we looked back on how Jesus endured such great stress and anguish. Um, you know, stress and anguish of soul there in the garden that he began to sweat great drops of blood, as it were, a condition known as hematidrosis. Um, we briefly reviewed the beating and the humiliation last week that he endured at the hands of the religious leaders. You know, at the hands of, of men who claimed to be God's representatives. Uh, we saw them spitting upon Jesus. We saw them uh, striking him, punching him in the face, all while mocking the Son of God. And you'll remember also that, uh, you know, the details regarding his scourging that we went over and what that meant to be scourged. Uh, I personally think we always want to be reminded about how brutal and terrible uh, scourging actually was. You know, we also talked in detail uh, how death was brought about through crucifixion. You know, the agony of hanging there on the cross, being nailed to the cross with, you know, eight to 10 inch spikes, ultimately succumbing to suffocation and heart failure. You know, last week we looked at the first of three statements, the first, uh, uh, the first three statements that Jesus made hanging from the cross. And um, so what was the first statement he made? Do you remember? Yeah, that's exactly right. Luke 23, 34, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And as we looked at this statement, we talked about Jesus being a man of prayer how he began his public ministry with prayer and how here we see him ending his public ministry with prayer. And we talked uh, again about the power that's available to every believer who's willing and desiring to walk in close fellowship and constant communion with the Father through prayer. And we also noticed that Jesus modeled what he taught, right? He forgave others. Right? He, he forgave those who didn't deserve his forgiveness. He prayed for those that were uh, abusing him. And, and, and let's not overlook the obvious too, okay? I mean, the cross itself speaks of forgiveness. That a man can be cleansed of his sins, all his sins, and find forgiveness simply by receiving uh, by faith what was accomplished there on the cross by our Savior. And we talked about last week, how Jesus left us this example. He gave us this example and how we as believers, we should seek, we should strive to live a life of prayer and forgiveness, following him in that example. And then the second statement that Jesus made while nailed to the cross is found in Luke 23, 43. There in Luke 23, 43, 
Jesus says, As surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we saw uh, both those thieves, one on his right hand, the other on his left, both of them reviled the Lord as they hung there. But something, something happened to the heart of one of those thieves, right? One of those two thieves um, heard Jesus's words with a different heart, right? Somehow he realized who Jesus was. Perhaps it's when he heard Jesus pray, Father, forgive them. Whatever it was, the fear of God uh, came upon the man and he cried out to Jesus, confessing him to be Lord. He believed in his heart that Jesus was Lord and he confessed it with his mouth. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's when the Lord Jesus immediately responded to him saying, as surely I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And you know, what a mystery that is. Two men, both condemned and guilty, both sentenced to death, both in need of forgiveness, each one equally as close to the Lord, each one having equal access to the Lord, both hearing the words that he spoke. And yet we see one of those two thieves responding with indifference, you know, while the other sees his need for a savior and places his faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, what a mystery that is. It's a complete mystery to think that two people can sit in the same room on a Sunday morning like this morning, hear the same message taught from the Bible, from the Word of God, and one will listen with indifference in his heart, maybe even walking away, reviling the, the Lord, reviling the Son of God, while the other listens with his heart, right? Being moved by the Holy Spirit, hearing God's voice, you know, um, receiving by faith the Son of God as his Savior, having his name written in the Lamb's book of life, ultimately being with the Lord there in heaven, worshiping before the Lord on his throne, the recipient of untold blessings for eternity. And I tell you what, that's the man that I want to be. Man, how I want to be that man, how I want to be moved in my heart every single time that we're together as a church, be it on a Sunday morning, be it on a Wednesday night, be it on a Saturday night as we, we meet for prayer. I want to be surrendered in my heart. I want to be attentive, right? I want to be waiting in anticipation for God to speak to me every time I open the Word of God and read it. You know, every time I hear the Word of God taught, how I want to yield my life to Him in response to His Word, right? In response, in response to his sacrifice, in response to his love demonstrated on the cross for me, how I desire to be changed and live this life for him. Now that's the desire of my heart. God forbid that I fail to come to God's word without an expectation of him speaking to me. You know, it's my prayer for us as a fellowship. It's my prayer for you individually. And you that are visiting with me, I, I, I'm, I pray for you too, that we would be so moved in our heart at the hearing of God's word, right? That we would hunger and thirst for him in such a way that, um, you know, we would seek to bring him tremendous joy and pleasure to him, living our lives for him, giving ourselves to him totally. 
totally and completely holding nothing back in reserve, right? Desiring with all our hearts to serve him and bring glory to his name. Lord, I pray that he would work that in each one of us. Lord, please do it. And then the third statement that Jesus uttered from the cross is found in John's gospel. It's found in John 19, 26 through 27. It says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. You know, it was here we saw Jesus honoring his mother. Before he could die for the sins of the world, he had to make sure that his mother was cared for. And, and I tell you what, what a lesson that is for us. What a lesson that is for us. Before we can minister to others, our ministry first has to start at home. Right? How easy it is to forget this. You know, there have been many times in the past that uh, the Lord has shown me that I've fallen short in this area. That, that uh, I've put ministry before my wife and kids. And I can remember one time, uh, very specifically, when I was heading up the men's ministry in our church, the Lord revealed to me that I was spending more time praying for the men in, in our church than I was praying for my wife and, and my family. You know, I can remember another time at a couple's retreat where we were washing the, the feet of our wives. You know, and so I went over and I got a basin and I poured water into that basin and I began to wash Tina's feet. And as I was doing this, you know, I saw over here, you know, something else that needed uh, to, to have some attention paid to it. I saw another need, right? So, you know, I, I handed Tina a towel so she could dry her feet. What a knucklehead. Man, I left her, I left her to care for something else. You know, and, and uh, you know, it was something that really hurt my wife. It really hurt her. And I, I needed to remember that, man, I, I should take every opportunity. I should seize every moment I can to pay my full attention and minister to my wife. You know, I always remember this event, this specific foot washing event, uh, even today with, with great regret. You know, it was a moment that I should have ceased to lovingly minister to her. But you know what? I was focused on ministering uh, to the church, you know, and, and because of that, I failed to serve my wife the way I should have. Our ministries need to start at home. And, and you know, maybe you're here this morning and you're the type of person like me that you don't always notice the things that you should. Uh, you know, you, you should be doing this, but you're over there doing that. You know, it's okay. What we need to be is just quick to surrender in our heart when the Lord reveals it to us. And then from that point, move forward. That's what we need to do. Well, we also uh, took note of uh, Jesus' grace, the great grace that he extended in this third statement. Again, you'll remember that uh, we were told that all the disciples fled and forsook Jesus. And now here's John uh, returning to the foot of the cross. You know, and we don't see Jesus angry with John when he sees him. You know, we don't see Jesus harshly rebuking John for abandoning him. You know, we see Jesus 
entrusting an important work to John. He entrusts his mother to John to lovingly care for her in his absence. And again, maybe you're here this morning. You know, you're backslidden. Maybe you're here and, and you know you're someplace that you shouldn't be, right? Um, you know, you're not where you want to be with the Lord. Uh, maybe you're here and, and you know that, that you're not where you want to be with the Lord, where you, you're where you shouldn't be with the Lord, and you feel like he's just kind of washed his hands of you. You know that he's probably thinking, you know, I wish you would just go away. You know, you've blown it so bad. And again, this is not true. This is a lie from the, from the devil himself. If you feel like that, you need to be encouraged by this story. You know, you, you just need to come back to Jesus. If you'll purpose in your heart to meet the Lord at the foot of the cross, he'll pour out his grace upon you just like he did for John. Just like he had a significant work for John, he has a significant work for you. Again, you know, John went on to pen probably what was, uh, was uh, the clearest revelation of Jesus Christ in his gospel. Not to mention the Lord giving, giving him the book of Revelation. Right? In fact, God gave John five New Testament books that he would write. You know, what a comfort that it is that is to me. Uh, you know how you need to understand. If you've fallen away from the Lord, there's grace for you as you return to the Lord. God's not done with you. You know, he has a work that he wants to entrust to you. And he hasn't given up on you. He'll never give up on you. He has a meaningful plan and purpose for your life, for my life, for our life, in spite of our personal failures, right? We see in the Gospels that Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. Halfway through the six hours, right, three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that darkness fell over all the land. So Matthew 27, verse 45. If your Bibles are open, you're going to want to look down at it. If not, it's projected up here in front. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. And great darkness fell on all the land at noon, which lasted until 3 p.m., Right? Many people have tried to explain uh, away the darkness which, which fell that day, saying, you know what? It was, a, it was a solar eclipse. Well, listen, maybe you've run into people uh, that have said that. Maybe you've heard people say that. But a solar eclipse is not even an option. Why is that, Gear? Because it's Passover. And <laughs> so what, you might say? Well, Passover means it was a full moon. It's impossible to have a solar eclipse in the day at noontime and have a full moon at night. You know, have you ever given any thought? Have you ever thought just how interesting it is that there was three hours of darkness? I mean, when Jesus was born, there was a star over the manger as the light of the world comes into the light, uh, comes into the world. But here it is death. There's three hours of darkness. You know, I think that that darkness was a statement reflecting the depravity of mankind. 
that, you know, mankind would put to death the Son of God. You know, I, I think, though, it's interesting. I think it's a little deeper than that. I think it's interesting, especially when you look back at the book of Exodus and you review the events of the Passover prior to sacrificing the Passover lamb, prior to taking the blood of that lamb and applying it to the doorpost and the lintel in the shape of a cross, prior to that, there were three days of darkness. And Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 5, that Jesus is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. And prior to his sacrifice, we see three hours of darkness. You know, the whole celebration of Passover is fulfilled in Christ, even in the darkness over all the land. Now, by the way, just as a side note, okay, the Greek word there, Matthew 27, 45, can we put it up again? Matthew 27, 45, the Greek word there where it says, now from the sixth hour until ninth, there was darkness over all the land. The Greek word there for land is the word G, G-E. It's where we get the English word geography, right? So what's interesting to me is that Greek word means the earth as a whole, right? It means the inhabited earth, the abode of men and animals, the land, uh, differentiating it from the sea and the water. Mark's gospel tells us, Mark 15, 33, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke, who was a very detailed physician, he says in his gospel, Luke 23, 44, now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Now, you know, I find that amazing because if you look into um, ancient records from around the world, you actually find uh, records of a period of unusual darkness. You know, again, the scriptures being fulfilled. Even the darkness was prophesied. For God said in Amos 8, verses 9 and 10, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into morning, speaking of the Passover, and all your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth upon every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son. How interesting is that for an only son? And it's in like a bitter day. Now, as we return back to our study of the seven saints of Christ, uh, I think it's important to note that in the darkness from noon to 3 p.m., Jesus suffers in silence. Right? We're not allowed to see or hear his suffering during this time. We have no record of what occurred during these three, three hours. And then towards the end of those three hours of silent suffering, Jesus breaks the silence by uttering his fourth statement from the cross. We read in Mark's gospel, Mark 15, 40, uh, 34. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's here that we need to understand 
that Jesus, for all eternity past, lived in perfect communion with the Father. And I don't know if we'll ever, ever be able to fully understand it. But up until this point, Jesus lived in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's never been separated from them. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the, the adoption uh, as sons. And Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus emptied himself and became a man. The day came when Jesus laid aside his glory, you know, and he became a man. He laid aside his privileges as God. He left that perfect fellowship with God the Father and took on the form of a servant. And being found in the appearance as a man, Jesus being 100% God, you know, took on the form of a man. He became a man, right? Jesus is literally deity enrobed in humanity. He's 100% God and 100% man at the same time. How is that possible? I don't know. That's the mystery of godliness. It says in Philippians 2, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. And as he hung there on the cross, he bore our sins, your sins and mine. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, right? That we might be uh, made righteous, having his sinless life, his perfect life imputed to us as we place our faith in him, giving our lives to him, living obedience to God's word, confessing Jesus to be Lord. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. This verse tells us that every one of us, you know, we were out there doing our own thing going our own way. And it was then that the Lord has laid upon, uh, laid on him the iniquity of us all, right? We get a little insight from this verse, uh, just what happened. It helps us to understand what's going on as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? It was in that moment that God laid on Jesus your sin. It was in that moment that the father turned his back on the son. It was, it was in that moment that Jesus knew what it was like to be separated from the father. It was in that moment that Jesus knew what it, would, would, uh, what it was to be like to be forsaken from the father. Living devoid of the father's presence. Right? And I find it interesting to note there is Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's interesting to note that this is the first time that Jesus addresses the Father as God. Always before this time, 
he addresses him as Father. And now Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone once said that he was forsaken that we might be forgiven. Jesus endured the cross for a time that we might enjoy the Father for eternity. Right? He drank the cup of God's wrath that we might partake the cup of communion. Right? He hung in awful darkness that we might be able to walk in marvelous light. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we would never have to utter those words? But wait a minute, Gary. You know what? I feel like God has forsaken me. You know, I, I don't feel his presence. Uh, it doesn't seem like he answers any of my prayers. I don't hear his voice. I feel as if he's completely forgotten me. And to that, my reply is, I know, right? I mean, you're not the only one that feels that way. I feel that way a lot of times too. But what does the Bible have to say? Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, God says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? It's a ridiculous pop proposition. Surely, he goes on to say, they may forget. What he's saying is, okay, even as ridiculous as that may be, there may be, you know, a few moms that would forget her child, right? But he says, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed uh, you on the palms of my hand, right? Every time Jesus looks down and sees the scars in his hand, he's reminded of you. You know, Psalm 60, uh, 56, verse 8, the psalmist writes, You number my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? His eyes are always upon you. Right? Not because, you know, he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can strike you dead. You know, that's not it. His eyes are always upon you because, you know what? He loves you. God loves you. He knows where you're at at all times because he's watching over you. He knows where you're going. He knows where you've been. He knows when you're crying. And you know what? He logs everything about you in a diary, so to speak, right? Because he's in love with you. You know, God doesn't just love you. He's in love with you. You know, he was forsaken. He endured the separation so that we would never have to be separated from him. You know, it's here at the cross that we see the holiness of God. We're told many places in, in, in throughout Scripture that God is holy, right? But it's here we see the holiness of God on full display. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. Now, death in the Scriptures is more than just, you know, physically ceasing to exist right? Death, the death that the Bible is concerned about is eternal separation from God, right? It's here at the cross when Jesus takes upon himself the sin of the world, right? And the Father, the Father's separated from the Son. It's all because God is holy that this forsakenness, I think it's a word, forsakenness, takes place. God can't look upon sin because he's holy. You know, it's here at the cross that we also see the wrath of God. 
right? It was at the cross that Jesus drank the full measure of God's wrath that our sins deserved. You'll remember that Jesus prayed in the garden, Oh, my Father, if it uh, is possible, uh, let this cup pass. You know, that should take each one of us in uh, immediately. It should take us back to the Old Testament, where so often the Old Testament prophets spoke of the cup of God's righteous indignation, his wrath, his fury, his anger towards sin. And David said that God is angry with the wicked every day. God's anger burns against wickedness. God's anger burns against unrighteousness, against sin, against rebellion to him. And it's, it was at the cross that Jesus made propitiation for us, right? John tells us that Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, it's one of my favorite verses, 1 John 2, 2, but it's not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world, Right? And if you don't know what propitiation is, it's a word that actually has two meanings, right? The first, it just means to make atonement for. When we place our faith in Christ and his substitutionary atonement, again, that just means that he was substituted for us. He took my place. When we place our faith in his substitutionary atonement, our sins are washed away by his shed blood. You know what? It's just amazing to think about it. Secondly, propitiation, it means to satisfy the wrath of God, the righteous indignation of God directed towards sin and wickedness has been poured out on Jesus Christ and fully satisfied, right? And it's here that we begin to understand the beautiful message of the Bible Right? Our sins were placed on Christ and judged there at the cross, right? So that we could always be in fellowship with the Father. Jesus bore the penalty our sins deserved. He absor- uh, absorbed the Father's righteous indignation in our place so that we would never have to face God's wrath. God struck the Son as he took your sins upon him. God's storm of fury rained down upon the sin instead of raining down upon you, rained down upon the sun instead of raining down upon you. You know, it's here at the cross, we also see God's justice displayed. God is a just God, right? For God to remain just, he must punish sin. He must punish sin. Uh, sin. He must judge wrongdoing and mete out punishment where punishment is due. Jesus took my sin and yours, right? He took my rebellion and yours. And God, to remain just, what he did, he he, um, judged my sin and my rebellion. He judged your sin and rebellion by pouring out his just judgment by meeting out just punishment upon Jesus in our place. And we also see here at the cross the overwhelming love of God. It's where God's, uh, where he demonstrated his love for us. You know, it says in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son. It's where Jesus demonstrated his love for us there at the cross by laying down his life for you. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friend, right? Jesus took our wickedness in a great demonstration of his love. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means he died in our place, right? He died on our behalf. It was at the cross that Jesus was separated from the Father, so we would never have to be. It was at the cross that Jesus drank the the, uh, cup of God's wrath in our place. It was at the cross that he received the just punishment for your sins. He paid the penalty your sins deserve. It was at the cross that we see the love of God demonstrated so beautifully. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, that uh, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in Hebrews 13, verse 8, the writer to, to, to the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is such an important verse to understand. What it tells us is if God has ever at any time in the past, if God has ever loved you, well, then guess what? He will always love you. Jeremiah says God loves you with an everlasting love. God's love never changes. And words fall short to convey the depth of God's love for each one of us. Now we come to the fifth saying of Jesus from the cross, and it's found in John 19. John 19, verse 28, 29, and it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So we just read there, it says that Jesus, knowing all things uh, were now accomplished. Well, what were the things the Father gave Jesus to accomplish? Well, he came first off to reveal the Father to us. Right? You might remember John 14, Philip, he comes to Jesus and he says, says to him, you know, Lord, show us the Father and that will be sufficient for us. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And yet you've not seen the Father, Philip? He who's seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Uh, it, it would, the Greek is kind of like a word picture. Like when you take a stamp and you stamp, you know, a document, that stamp is now the exact image of uh, Uh, the identical depiction of the original. He came to, to, to show us the Father. Secondly, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And knowing that he accomplished the Father's will, he said, I thirst. And, and again, you know what? I find this so interesting because even at the end of his life, you know what? He's still mindful of the Father's will. Knowing that the end is near, 
and that the prophetic scriptures regarding his death needed to be fulfilled in order to testify to all who he in fact is, he says, I thirst. And at this statement, they gave him sour wine to drink, fulfilling Psalm 69, 21, which says, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Right? Again, it's a fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. Now, try to track with me for a minute, okay? Psalm 22 gives us the events of the crucifixion from the viewpoint of the Messiah. It's the viewpoint from the cross, right? Psalm 22, 15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws, right? So what's happening is dehydration, severe dehydration has now set in. And Jesus' mouth is very, very dry. And he says, I thirst. And they gave him some sour wine to drink. Now, when he said, I thirst, I believe he said it in fulfillment of prophecy. But I also believe that he said it so that after receiving a drink, everyone would be able to hear him clearly say the next thing uh, that he says. Now, just imagine if you can, in all the pain and suffering Jesus has endured up to this point, right? Then to have a thirst so great, right, that he's willing to expend precious energy needed to speak these words, in order to get a drink to wet his mouth, I believe it's because he wants everyone to hear the next words out of his mouth. And the next words out of his mouth, they're found in John 19, verse 30. And it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Te telestai in the Greek. Well, what was finished? Well, first, his suffering is now finished. Secondly, more importantly, everything it takes for you and I to come into a right relationship with the Father has been finished here at the cross, right? Te telestai in the Greek, it can uh, also be translated the end of, right? It's here we realize that Jesus made an end of sin and guilt as we place our faith in him. Right? Jesus on the cross made an end of Satan's stronghold upon those who are willing to come to Jesus in faith. Te telestai can also be translated accomplished. Jesus had accomplished the work that the Father had given him to do. It was uh, the work at the cross where the just suffered for the unjust to accomplish atonement for sin. You know, te telestai can also be translated perform. Jesus living a perfect, sin, sinless life performed the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And when we place our faith in him, his righteous life, which fulfilled the law, is imputed to our account, resulting in our justification. It can also be translated paid in full from the cross, Jesus cried out, Te telestai, paid in full. Every sin you've ever committed is now paid.
paid in full. You know, I owed a debt so great that was li- there was literally no possibility, no possible way that I could ever be free from that debt. You know, and the same true is true for everyone else in the world. And God so loved the world, he esteemed a relationship with each one of us so highly that he sent his son who willingly came to lay down his life in order to pay the debt that he didn't owe. You know what? And Jesus came, taking our sins upon himself, suffering and dying, you know, on that cross, in our place, right? Satisfying God's wrath and, and justice, sense of justice, paying the penalty, uh, you know, for the sins that we've committed. And he paid that penalty in full. He paid that debt in full. And we'll never, right? Here's good news right here. We'll never be punished for those sins since that would violate the justice of God, right? Those sins were already judged. They were judged at the cross. We've, played, uh, we've passed from death to life as we place our faith in Christ. And the beautiful truth, and this is a necessary truth for each one to comprehend, the beautiful truth is because that debt is paid in full, resulting in our salvation, we are unable to do anything to add to our salvation, right? You know, God's grace and our efforts to gain some kind of righteousness in the sight of God, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't mix any better than, uh, you know, oil and water mixes. Grace and works does not mix. Grace and anything mars the finished work of the cross. The seventh saying is also found in Luke chapter 23. Having accomplished everything the Father gave Jesus to do, having destroyed the power of Satan, having paid for the sins of all mankind, Having said it is finished, Jesus then says, Luke 23, uh, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, this shows us that Jesus gave up his life. You know, when he wanted to and how he wanted to. His life wasn't taken from him, right? It was offered up to God as a sacrifice for sin. He willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus was not a victim, which we should pity. Oh, poor Jesus, you know, just wrong place, wrong time. That's not it at all. Jesus is a conqueror that we should admire, right? Jesus had total and complete confidence that the Father would receive him. And based on the finished work of Christ, we can rest in him and commit our lives into his hand. And not only that, but we can also have the same total, complete confidence that when we die or when uh, loved ones of ours die, trusting in Christ as their Savior, you know what? We too will be received into the hands of the Father. You know, the story of Jesus' crucifixion continues even after that because we read in Luke 23, verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now, centurions were men who gained that rank 
by distinguishing themselves in battle, right? They had seen many, many men die in their lifetime, right? And upon witnessing Jesus' death, right, what he had said and how he had acted while being crucified, the centurion testifies for the entire world to see, right, that Jesus was a righteous man, right? And it says that the centurion glorified God. You know, it's amazing to me to notice every single aspect of Jesus' life was fulfillment of prophecy. More than 300 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus to prove that he was and is the promised Messiah, right? And, and uh, how every aspect of his crucifixion was also prophesied and fulfilled exactly, even down to the seven statements he makes from the cross. First one, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, Luke 23, 34. It's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. You know, it'd be great to have a pen and paper uh, right now. Um, you know, there's a pen in front of the seat back uh, in front of you. You can take it, jot these uh, fulfilled prophecies down. And then, you know, keep the pen and, and uh, give it to somebody that you invite to church. But Isaiah 53, 12 says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, that, uh, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for uh, the transgressors. Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. The second statement he made, as surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, is a fulfillment of Matthew 1, 21. You know what? 33 years earlier, long before Jesus' crucifixion, an angel came to Joseph and said, and she, speaking of Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from sins. And that's exactly what's happening here at the cross. Jesus dying for the sins of the Jewish people. And salvation is offered to whoever will place their faith in him. The thief on the cross being the first to enjoy that salvation as Jesus saves him from his sins. The third statement, woman, behold your son and behold your mother. We spoke last week how this is a fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy in Luke chapter 2. One day, Simeon said, there in the temple, he said, one day this child, which was born into the world, would be like a sword piercing Mary's soul. And there's no doubt, no doubt in my mind at all that Mary felt like there was a sword just being run through her heart. You know, as she looked up at her son, her once little boy hanging there on the cross. The fourth statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a fulfillment of David that he prophesied uh, what the Messiah would say uh, on the cross, from the cross in Psalm 22, verse 1. And again, it was prophesied a thousand years before Jesus was even born. It, again, it's just so amazing to me to see these fulfilled prophecy. The fifth statement, I thirst. We talked about this being a fulfillment of Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. The sixth statement, it's finished. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 
22, verse 31. And when you look it up in the Hebrew, it's declared to yet future generation. And Psalm 22, uh, 31 could be translated, he has finished or accomplished this. And then the seventh saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a word-for-word fulfillment of Psalm 31, verse 5. Every single one of these statements was a fulfillment of prophecy written a thousand years before the cross in the case of Psalm 22, 750 years before the cross in, in the case of Isaiah 53. And you might be tempted to say, wow, you know, that's, that's really pretty interesting. But actually, it's way more than just interesting. Prophecy proves to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. More than 300 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. I mean, think about it. More than 300 individual prophecies that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would flee to Egypt for safety, that he would be raised in Nazareth, that he would be betrayed by a close friend. And not only would he be betrayed by a close friend, but he would be betrayed by thir- uh, for 30 pieces of silver. You know, and the list just uh, of prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' first coming just goes on and on and on, right? God gives us all of these prophecies so that we would have confidence in him, right? In his word, in the salvation that he so graciously provided for us. We never need to doubt our salvation. We never need to doubt God's love for us. We never need to doubt our future home in heaven. Right? Peter said in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19, Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor, uh, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came um, to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, or as the King James Version translates it, we have also the more sure word of prophecy, or as the NIV translates it, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And Peter goes on to say, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What Peter is saying here in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19, he's saying, listen, I was on that mountain when Jesus was transfigured. I saw his glory shining through his humanity. I heard the voice of God coming from heaven. I heard it with my own ears. You know, he said, Better than seeing all of that with my own eyes. Better than hearing what was said from heaven with my own ears. 
better and more sure than what I saw and what I heard is the prophetic word that points to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, which, by the way, proves Jesus was an acceptable uh, sacrifice for sin uh, and the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. It all points to the security of our salvation that's found in Christ alone. There is no other way. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's no other way of salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given among men where we must be saved. Jesus is our Passover lamb, right? He is our sacrifice. He is our Savior. We can rejoice in the finished work of the cross. We can worship him because he's worthy of, our, of all our praise and worship. And you can rest in him because he loves you. We can live for him because he died for us. And we can boldly become, uh, come before the throne of grace to commune with the Father and obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need because Christ Jesus our Lord gave his life that we might be saved. Let's pray. You guys want to come up? Father, we do just thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the assurance that we find in the word of God. We thank you for the more sure word of prophecy that declares to us that it's not foolishness in the least to place our faith in you, to give you our life, Lord. And Father, I pray that it would be something that we would do every day, Calvary Chapel Truckee, that we would be mindful of your sacrifice and surrender our hearts to you afresh every day. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your sacrifice. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.